Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, the podcast about the visual production of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Dan Solberg. And I'm Kate Berry. Today we're going to start with Season 5 of Game of Thrones. We've got a lot of, I don't know, maybe some changes of pace, I think, to the mm-hmm. way this show has been going. We've got a new director, Michael Slovis, directing both of these episodes, 501 and 502, The Wars to Come, and The House of Black and White. So, sort of an untested, as far as Game of Thrones goes, director. And I don't know, how do you think it turned out? How, how did you think uh, Slovis did here? I think the episodes look pretty good, mm-hmm. especially since we are, we meet a lot of new people, we've got characters in new situations, that there's a lot new information. I, I do think there's a major problem with the whole season. I think that there's a villain problem, mm-hmm. and a lot of those villains get introduced in these two episodes, but I don't think it's necessarily his fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is a lot of, I, I think I would describe especially the first one, but even still the second one, because we haven't, we don't touch base with even all the characters in that first episode. There's a lot of table setting going on here. There's a lot of sort of come down from a pretty ramped up finale last season where some big stuff happened and it really crammed a lot into those last couple episodes. So this is sort of really a, a resettling and moving the pieces around a bit. Yeah, and there's some things that they haven't done before. The first episode starts with a flashback, mm-hmm. which they had very pointedly not done in the other episodes because I guess the original show premiere had a lot of flashbacks and that it came off really badly. Mm. And so I, I think I like this one, but I know that they were nervous about flashbacks at all because I guess the fear is there are already so many characters that if you flashback to characters at younger ages or introduce new characters that the audience just won't be able to follow. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, I think we'll get to it once we really start to digging in here, but you know, there, I think there's not what I'm going to say a lot of corners being cutted, ne- cut necessarily, but I think the notable thing that we'll keep coming back to a lot this season is really a focus on the adaptation here and the differences between the text and the film or the movie, or the TV show rather, not necessarily because it's all just like oh, how dare they do something different than the books. But I think those choices end up being kind of some of the more interesting things going on here. Because we're we're going from essentially two seasons that adapted one book to one season that more or less is adapting two books into itself. Yeah, the scale really changes. Mm -hmm. I also think part of it, and I'll, 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 I'll visit this throughout this episode, that there's a lot of things that haven't been tied up in the book. Mm-hmm. And so in our imaginations, they could still pan out in a really interesting way. But because they are so busy tying up loose ends in the show, we're able to see like, oh, that arc wasn't important. This yeah. didn't end up affecting anything. And so it makes things that are still interesting in the books and may, and may end up not being interesting. Yeah. They still have potential where in the show we realize they never went anywhere. Right. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. Will you give us a recap of episode 501, The Wars to Come. All right. In a flashback, Cersei and Malera Heatherspoon seek out Maggie the Frog, and Cersei hears about her future. In the present, Cersei goes to see her father's corpse and expresses her disappointment in Jaime. Varys and Tyrion arrive in Pentos, and Varys tells Tyrion that he could help save Westeros by serving Daenerys. In Marine, the Harpy statue is torn down from the pyramid, and an unsullied soldier is killed in a brothel by a son of the Harpy. John trains Ollie, and Stannis tells John to convince Mance to kneel and save his people by committing them to Stannis' cause. Podrick, Brienne, Littlefinger, and Sansa travel around the Eyrie. Cersei speaks with Lancel and his father Kevin, and we hear for the first time about the Sparrows. 
Marjorie walks in on Loris and Olivar in bed and advises them to be more discreet. Dario and Hisdar return from Yunkai. Both men think Daenerys should reopen the fighting pits. Danny visits Rhaegal and Viserion, but they scare her away. Stannis and Melisandre plan to burn Mance, but Jon shoots him through the heart to stop his suffering. Yeah, so, I mean, we cover a lot of ground. We go a lot of places and sort of touch base with most everyone. I mean, we don't see Arya this one, mm-hmm. and we don't see anything of the Bolton still in actually these first two, and uh, we'll see the a little bit more of Dorne in, in the second episode. We kind of follow up with some of the major plot threads from uh, the children episode last time, so. Yeah, and it seems that the action for most of the storylines is happening pretty soon after season four's end. Mm-hmm. Maybe the most accelerated timeline is probably Tyrion and Varys because they're already arrived in Pentos. So in the time that it has taken to sort of prepare Tywin's body for mm-hmm. the funeral, Tyrion has grown a very thick beard. Yeah, <laughs> so, and they've, they've made a sea journey. Yeah. So, you know, maybe these things aren't meant to be happening at the exact same time, which, fine. You know, yeah. They could be a little bit different. That's just sort of how they're framed, right? Yeah, but everything else is, is happening, seems, um, pretty soon after. Mm-hmm. So we open here with a flashback, like you mentioned. I think it might be telling that starting in season five is the one that they've decided to open with a flashback, because I think that it's displaying a little bit more confidence on the part of the the show here to sort of try something new in this regard and also seemingly to really frame the arc of a season in a certain way because this is not just like oh there happens to be a flashback at some point but it is the introduction to the whole season it really feels like it is like you know in the books they have these prelude chapters Mm -hmm. and that's sort of like not usually our typical characters or, or typical sort of situations that we think about but it sort of thematically frames the thing or there's going to be something happening in the background that's going to mm. you know keep in mind the rest of the book and i think that this is that case for cersei and really kind of framing this season as around her arc that she's going to have i think that's a really good point i mean we've known we've gotten to know cersei pretty well at this point but we haven't seen her maybe in this light of trying to escape her fate mm. or trying that she has some idea of what was going to happen to her and that maybe her whole life is trying to make that not happen. Mm-hmm. So it makes her a little bit more, in some ways, sympathetic, right? But also, in a way, sort of stupid to try to escape the inevitable because we know that her children will die, someone else is going to take her place, and no matter how hard she fights, these things are inescapable for mm-hmm. her. Yeah, I mean, and also in a really sort of rare move for TV production, both seasons five and six were were greenlit by HBO at the premiere of season four. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you're able to go into this season saying, like, this isn't the end. Like, we're going to have this sort of as its own thing, and then we can plan this season knowing that the next one, we can kind of be planning these a little bit at the same time. Uh, which is kind of funny considering, like, if you think about the way that those books are structured and how, like, A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons are more or less the same time frame, but, you know, different characters, and this kind of being a slightly different twist on that same thing. But it gives them the freedom to say, okay, we're not going to deal with Bran right now, mm-hmm. we're not really going to do the Greyjoy plot, that there's things that they can say, we're going to put a pin in that for now, but we will get to it. Yeah. So, yeah, I end up liking this opening here. It's not a cold open which we've had the past couple times and it's in fact very muddy and <laughs> warm so it's it definitely very different sort of uh, tone from our literal cold opens that we tend to have so mm-hmm. often 
I think it's great casting. <laughs> I think the the actress that they got to play young Cersei really fits fits the look and also certainly the attitude. Yeah, I read something that it was really it was initially hard for them to have her sort of copy uh, older Cersei's mm-hmm. uh, acting because they could show her so little of the show. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of it uh, that wasn't appropriate for her. <laughs> and so it was a little difficult for her to, to copy uh, Lena Headey's mannerisms because she wasn't allowed to see so much of the show. Show her some stills, some arched eyebrows, and yeah. she'll fill in the rest. Yeah. But the aesthetics of this opening are very sort of like Enchanted Woods mm-hmm. storybook kind of fairy tale, like dark fairy tale, a little Pan's Labyrinth-y yeah. kind of feel to it going on. It's very lush. They're sort of, again, stepping over these kind of muddy paths and find this hut uh, where Maggie the Frog, who I don't think is named ever technically in the show, mm-hmm. but it's just sort of this woods witch is his reputation. In the books, there's the, the, the whole kind of, I think maybe a little bit contrived backstory that she somehow has like taught uh, Miramaz Dur or something like that. It's it's a little much, maybe, but like I don't know that we needed that much backstory for Maggie right. the Frog. It also makes it seem like there are only 300 people on, right. this, on this planet. Oh, the other witch. Okay, right. got it. But I like the way that they ended up playing out here. Similar to the way that when Oberyn was younger and came to visit to see baby Tyrion, he was disappointed that Tyrion was not the monster that Cersei had sort of built him up to be. And in this case, Maggie the Frog has also been built up to the, be this grotesque sort of monster of a human. And she's like that you're not scary at all you know you're not you're not what i expected to find and so it's this series of sort of deflations of of cersei's kind of visions of like dark fantasy here yeah and in and she's initially pretty confused by the prophecy as well she thinks she's going to be this isn't explained particularly well in the show she thinks Mm -hmm. she's going to be engaged to prince rhaegar right and maggie the frog says you won't marry the prince you marry the king and she doesn't, of course, understand what that means in that moment, mm. but it means she'll marry Robert Baratheon. She asks about being queen mm. and that she will be queen until she's cast down by someone younger and more beautiful. And then also she asks about children and that her husband will have, I think they make it 20 in the mm. show, but that she'll have three with golden crowns and golden shrouds. Yeah. And those are all sort of confounding to her in the moment. But by the time we, we return to the present, she seems to have some idea of what that meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and two things that I noticed specifically about that prophecy. One, the big one, we don't have the Valonqar yeah. prophecy, which is the that the Valonqar, or little brother in Valyrian, will cast down the, or will you know, wrap their fingers around your neck and, and choke you out, snuff you out. I don't remember what the exact wording was. Kill you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that's a... I don't know why that wasn't in there. I feel like that would have brought so much more tension and interest into both Tyrion's quest, or if you were going to you know, think more about it and be like, oh, I don't know if it's actually Tyrion, maybe it's Jaime. Because the, the Jaime-Cersei relationship is going to go really boring places. Mm-hmm. And be like, well, what if there was this underlying tension of being like, when's Jaime going to turn? You know, like yeah, yeah. To sort of incorporate that into the show, I think, could have brought a little bit more of this kind of threatening presence to any time that they were going to be around and how is this going to go and it's just not there yeah the only reason i can think that they might have left well one of the reasons i can think of that they might have left it out and it's sort of a reverse of what i just said was going on in the the difference between having things tied up in the show and still going in the books Mm. is that they might want to leave it open 
for the writers to say who's going to kill Cersei. Mm-hmm. Because I know some people think it would be really satisfying if it was Sansa or Arya. Mm-hmm. And so they might want to give themselves that freedom where in the books, it seems pretty clear to me at least that one of her brothers is going to kill her. Yeah. I assume it's Jamie, right. But they might have been trying to... And the way that... When the show is not as it, at its best, they sort of just move the people around like pieces and say like what would be interesting who would Mm -hmm. be a weird combination of people to get together they may try to be giving themselves the space to do that to have sort of someone surprising kill Cersei Mm -hmm. even though part of what's interesting about this this flashback is that she's not very free in the way that other people might be because she knows what's going to happen in her life and so she might feel even more constrained and panicked if she knew who was going to kill her yeah and you know after we finish up the flashback we cut right to adult Cersei in the sept with dead Tywin there with his creepy stone eyes. Mm -hmm. Cersei arrives, Jaime's already there, and they have this exchange that more or less also has Jaime admitting that he released Tyrion, and Jaime also making this turn that he seems to now care about the family legacy. Like, maybe all of a sudden he saw that his inheritance might slip away, and he's like, we have to hold on to this stuff. Yeah. No, I remember you mentioning in the last episode that it was really strange that on one hand in, in, in an earlier scene that Jamie and Cersei had sort of repledged themselves to each other. But then after that, that he frees Tyrion, which mm-hmm. seems like a huge betrayal. And here we are, Cersei saying, you're stupid. You, you, you act, but you don't think about anything. Like, you're the one who's opened us up to the violence of others. Right. And so there is this really weird, it was a very brief moment they were reunited because she's she's pretty disgusted with him mm-hmm. when they and this is also the third time that they've met over a corpse i think at the at the very beginning they were over john aaron's corpse there was that unfortunate scene with joffrey's corpse and then here they are their father's body so this is something they meet like this a lot but this one she she says you know you basically you're an idiot and that you should feel really bad mm-hmm. and he seems to feel bad he does he's i mean he's a real He's a real flip-flopper right mm-hmm. now. He's just, like, going from one instinct to the next. You're like, oh, no, I want to be a good brother. Maybe I was a bad brother, though. <laughs> you know? I will say I am sort of disappointed in how this scene goes. It's so different in the books, and I think gives a much more fitting, if sort of demeaning end to Tywin, mm. that his body seems to putrefy in this unnatural way that people can't believe that he stinks so much. Mm-hmm. And his face is, it constricts into this odd smile. And so that, I, I really liked that in the books, and they don't go anywhere mm-hmm. near it in the show. I like this little transition over to Tyrion, where we have this sort of this porthole yeah. look to it, and a couple of different kind of just random shots of scenes going on in the dock over in Pentos. And we're just in there, and it just jumps cuts between a bunch of different views as we were getting kind of rattled around in there along with Tyrion. Finally, they, like, plant the box down, and, you know, Tyrion puts his fingers up to sort of cling to, to try and get out, and then Varys opens it with a crowbar, which is... <laughs> you don't really imagine Varys holding anything that could be used as a weapon or, like, require some sort of physical strength. Right. <laughs> it's like, Varys with the crowbar is a very odd pairing. Mm-hmm. And then Tyrion tumbles out, and, you know, part of me thinks that, you know, this is this is the show for the next couple seasons really starting to tier, steer Tyrion in this more of this just straightforward kind of comic 
Ruif character mm-hmm. where he becomes a little bit more one note. He's just all about like, I just want to drink wine. And they have this uh, reoccurring line about like being in this fucking box. And mm-hmm. then it just comes back again. And it's kind of like, I don't know that I need Tyrion catchphrases and all this kind of stuff going on. I, yeah. I think it's a little bit, it, it's more like this character, the treatment of the character in aggregate. So I'll be curious to see if I still feel that way throughout the rest of the season. I see the what feel like the seeds of it being planted here, mm-hmm. though. Even though I I think it's handled okay in this individual episode, they have Tyrion reflecting on some of the stuff that he has done in a way that feels grounded in in what that character would be going through. But I don't know. I still maybe remain a little bit unconvinced. Yeah, they're also doing something a little different with Varys because in the show we've already discovered Varys's plan, which mm-hmm. apparently is to restore. Daenerys Targaryen and so it makes him a pretty straightforward and virtuous character who really maybe is only interested in protecting the powerless from the powerful Mm -hmm. in the books it seems like much more complicated than that but it's strange for someone who was the spider and the master of whispers and is often played a little cagely right that he seems to come out and and put all his cards on the on the table and just now we know what he's always wanted here Mm -hmm. it is and it's to have the best leader for the people, yeah. which seems a little out of character, although it, it just becomes his character in the show. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish, and I remember thinking this at the time when I initially watched it, I kind of wish we could have seen Illyrio again, just to have him pop back in there to be like, yeah. the fact that he would have been in the like first episode of the show and basically not never again, well, he does show up in King's Landing that one time to talk to Varys in the dungeons, mm-hmm. barely see him and granted, they have cut out a lot of his influence in the show that he does have in the books as far as Daenerys' plot is concerned. And a lot of stuff with that in the books is still, again, suspect as to what exactly is going on and what the motivations of Illyrio and uh, various might be. I think they try to sweep a little bit of that, well, you know, not sweep under the rug, but address it to a certain degree. They have various refer to the things that have transpired as of late as a series of mistakes. Mm -hmm. So it seems like maybe they had certain intentions that then the show doesn't necessarily have to spell out explicitly because they're just going to say, like, this was not actually the plan. We had some other kind of plan, whatever it was, to have Daenerys or Viserys, I suppose, rise to power by this plot with selling Daenerys to call Drogo and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, obviously doesn't seem like a very direct path yeah. to conquering Westeros and returning home. And for all of various sort of aspirations of peace, you know, seemingly like teaming Daenerys with an army of Dothraki to come to Westeros doesn't necessarily seem like the most peaceful Approach. Right, especially knowing nothing about her, mm-hmm. that she was whisked away as a baby. And I mean, Ilario knows her, mm-hmm. but the Daenerys of the, of the first episodes does not seem like someone who will rule. That's the whole point, mm-hmm. that she seems, this is some, she, it's a role that she grows into and discovers within herself. Yeah. It wasn't obvious that, like, this woman's going to be queen. Right. If anything, it seemed like the plot would have been to put Viserys on the throne. Who's and, even worse suited for it. And he would be a cruel, you know, unjust ruler. And seems like maybe they wouldn't have known that when they first shipped them off to Pentos or wherever they, I think they went a few different cities. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly in the you know years since, like 18 years or whatever since then, Viserys grew to be very vindictive and be a terrible 
ruler. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is essentially, I think, even though it is not necessarily been a, a hidden agenda so much for Varys going forward, they do restate, this is what Varys is all about here. I'm going to relay my cards on the table. And again, this kind of table setting, like, here's the path forward. This is the Varys character that you need to know going forward. And whatever sort of mess was in the past, there were mistakes were made. Here's where we're going now. Yeah. And we go from that talk where he he does say, you know, Daenerys is the one who has all the things that it would take to be a good ruler. Mm -hmm. And then we go to Marine, where the harpy is being torn down very dramatically from the pyramid in a way that is symbolic, I think, of Daenerys's maybe rejection of the traditions of Marine. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that it's ever addressed. I mean, she's tearing down the image of their goddess. Right. You'd think that that would be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and there's a conversation that sort of will come up later this episode about the fighting pits and maybe you need to show that you respect our traditions and, and this will become more complicated in the next episode we talk about as well. But this, um, especially the disrespect of the city's religion, I don't know if it's ever given the weight that maybe it should be. I don't think it is. I mean, I don't think it's addressed is what I mean. You yeah. Know, it's like, I think there's a there's a number of script choices going on in these episodes and seemingly the setting the again the tone for the season to decomplicate some of the internal goings on in various places. Mm-hmm. You could argue that a lot of the stuff going on in Marine in the books is a little too complicated for its own good. Sure. It sort of gets maybe a little too into the weeds at times and you can lose sight of things. In fact, both of those books that essentially the season is based on, I would say, have very slow starts. Mm-hmm. And only maybe uh, maybe about halfway through in Dance of Dragons and I would say maybe you know, a quarter of the way through Feast for Crows that they really sort of pick up and get interesting. There's so much sort of table setting. So I guess that's, you know, it's fitting then that that's what these shows are going through and they're just sort of laying a lot of stuff out here. Here's the state of things and in a little bit plainer terms than essentially having chapters and chapters worth of like, here's Resnick Mo Resnick. You want to learn about this guy? <laughs> Who is a shave? What is a shave pate? I don't know. I still haven't figured it out. Um, but but they do have essentially to talk about what you were saying with the religion. There is this idea of the the green graces mm-hmm. in in Marine in the books, and I think her name is Galaza Galare. I want to say it's a Sounds good. I've been reading these chapters recently, so it's a little bit more firmer in memory. I don't have all that stuff memorized. <laughs> but there is that concept of, mm-hmm. of religion and entrenched beliefs there that are tied in the fighting pits and tied into these traditions. So yeah, this this is really, I think a little bit, this action would be a little bit more of a defiance than necessarily the show addresses, but you know they just kind of essentially tie it into like, this is essentially, you know, knocking out slavery, knocking right. out sort of the old way of doing things and in it, Marine. And it is. It's a symbol. I know that in, in some of the other cities in Yunkai and Astapor, I think the harpy holds chains and whips. Mm-hmm. And so it is related to a symbol of slavery. It just seems a little strange that usually when things are adapted, whatever is happening in a later time talks about the things that are complicated. So often race or gender Mm -hmm. or something like this might be a sort of colonialism would be addressed in greater detail Mm -hmm. and made um, sort of more in line with modern thinking. And I feel like this is actually less that they're like, it's complicated, but we're not going to come down on one way of like, what's what respect you have to pay to a culture that you've decided you can rule. They just, they kind of leave that alone. 
Also, I always thought the way that they tear this thing down is just like a little rough. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's going to damage the pyramid. I mean, I know they put the, some of those logs down in places, but like maybe have it like pull it down a little bit more slowly or something. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I was thinking about all these, the builders and the masons having to go back in later and look, look at all this damage. That it didn't done. have to be this way. Like, I, I know they don't care what happens to the statue. They wanted to break it up or whatever mm-hmm. anyway, probably melt it down. But uh, yeah, I thought, I thought they were a little rough on their pyramids there. Totally agree. But the Unsullied are also doing things a little bit differently as well, Mm -hmm. because we see that an Unsullied man called White Rat goes to the brothel just for a cuddle. Just for... um, It's all very innocent. Yeah, he's being cuddled and and sang to, and then in the middle of that, his throat is cut. Really gruesome. This is one of the scenes that I knew was coming. I kind of like wince. It's like, okay, I don't really want to look right at this. I know it's bad. Yeah. You know, we've seen plenty of blood on the show, but I don't know that we've had one so close up and this yeah. kind of like that immediately in the audience's face. I do think that the moments uh, leading up to his throat being cut, though, were some of the best of the episode just for telegraphing, but you're not, you start to doubt yourself like, I don't know, this seems kind of nice. Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is nice for this man. And then the, sh- the shot just keeps focusing on his Adam's apple mm-hmm. and on his neck. And you're like, this shot is going on a long time. All right, maybe things are not what I think they're going to be. And then yeah. and then the knife comes across. And so I, I like that because now that we've watched, you know, four seasons of Game of Thrones, we know mm-hmm. that if you're going to linger on someone's throat, that throat's probably going to get slashed. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of Catelyn Tully kind mm-hmm. of tell there. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why are we not cutting away? Oh, because something bad still has to happen. Right. And in this case, that, you know, that zoom, right? We do start out with a frame of seeing the woman that he's laying with and a little bit more of a full body shot. And ultimately, when that's all that's left, it, it leaves you open to have something come in from the side and have it be very surprising mm-hmm. because you have such a limited frame of vision. Right. And the person who's holding the knife is apparently a son of the harpy. And this is the first of what I will call the disappointing villain introductions. Uh. We, we don't really know much about them. We hear that this is the first time that they've actually killed an Unsullied or, or maybe anyone. These will be the enemies that sort of bother Daenerys f- for, for the season. But yeah, I, I think that they are something that is not made compelling enough. Mm. And so are, are one of the things that are sort of a letdown of season five. Okay. I'll be curious to hear more about that as we go on because I, I don't have an opinion about them really right now. It's okay. sort of I think it's be funny next episode when they pull one out of a wall, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't at this point I haven't I haven't formed any uh, uh, hard opinions about them yet. We also have the return of Hisdar and Dario from Yunkai. They've sort of made or at least have treated for peace there. They seem like they're bringing back some terms the Yunkish want. The fighting pits reopened, and as you said in the recap, Dario and Hisdar both vouch for this as well. Danny is very opposed to it, mm-hmm. even if it is totally slavery-free. Uh, she still doesn't want sort of fighting for sport, mm-hmm. blood, blood sport, to be going on. And I think that this is a really interesting, I would even maybe call it a jump cut, from this throne room scene to Danny rolling around on her bed with Dario's up getting up nude getting wine and her hair is all tussled it's it's the most sort of messy we've ever seen Mm -hmm. Daenerys other than maybe like when she was first riding around with the Dothraki Mm -hmm. Um, but even then I think she was more composed it was a little bit more again like that Christina Aguilera stripped video like Mm -hmm. version like oh I'm really scruffy but I've got my like very deliberately torn Mm -hmm. halter on and all this kind of stuff here it's just sort of like 
I don't know. I think she's this, got sex hair. She does, and she's got like some expression that'd be like if she. Uh, I don't know. I think this is what Danny would look like if she like had some pot brownies or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what are you? <laughs> she looks a little spaced out. Yeah. It's a really sharp cut, though, like where she refuses the fighting pits in the throne room, and then immediately, like without hesitation, we cut right back to her in this other scene. So there's not like any kind of transition or anything whatsoever, mm-hmm. and it's just sort of like these two different realms where she's having this conversation. In the one hand, she's outright saying no, and in the other hand, she, you know, still saying no, but she's listening to at least what Dario has to say mm-hmm. as far as his story here which is a little bit of an amalgamation of the dario that we know from the books and everything and a little bit of uh, strong bell losses kind of origin story in the fighting pits it's kind of merge those together and dario credits the fighting pits with making him into the man he is today but of course a lot of people had to die for him to become the man he is today so not everyone uh leaves the fighting pits a dario yes success story right and, you know, I'm eating my words continuously throughout a number of these episodes that we've seen with Dario that I thought that his daggers with the naked ladies on them, I, you know, I remembered as like, I don't think those come back much. They keep coming back, though. They keep showing up. <laughs> so I take it all back. Yeah. They're a very well-used, well-trodden prop. Yeah. It's the way he sort of signals to Daenerys in the throne room that he's like, I'm home. (laughs) That's true. That is true. So that's kind of funny that when we cut right to that. He also encourages Danny to show her strength to, I think, to embrace the more violent side of her nature. Mm -hmm. He says, you're the dragon queen. Where are your dragons? Mm -hmm. And then she goes to visit them, and they're pretty upset with her. It's a little unclear to me, though, what Daria wants her to do with the dragons. I totally agree, Dan. It's like... (laughs) What is that advice? It's like, well, why don't you unleash the dragons? On the sons of the harpy who are like hiding around, like I don't know. It'd be one thing to be like the yunkai is at our gates. We've got to do something about it. Well, you know, why don't you unleash the dragons? Okay, the dragons would probably be able to understand. Like big crowd outside mom's gates. Light them up. Time to light them up. Yeah, but like hunt around the streets <laughs> and find <laughs> these hiding guys in masks. Yeah. No, I. Uh... I have. I always found this a little confusing as to be like, what practically does he want her to do? Other than maybe if she allows the dragons to do what they want, mm-hmm. to burn people's children, that people of Marine might be scared enough yeah. of her that they won't revolt. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. So that maybe it's like, don't worry about people loving you, just make them fear you. Mm-hmm. Which was... Stannis's mm-hmm. advice. I don't remember if that was this episode or next one, though. But he does say that to John. Yeah, but and he's not going to be a good king either. So. No, and is really neither loved nor feared. Yeah. Uh, well, if we go from you know one queen to another, we go back to King's Landing here, and there's a scene in the I think it's the throne room, right? Yeah, because that's mm-hmm. where Tommen. Who also I wanted to mention in the after the episode thing. WB still calling him Toman, Toman. <laughs> a year later. It is very distracting. Nobody has told him it's not Toman. <laughs> but uh, now I'm going to track that and see if he continues to do it in, in future seasons. Because he gets other, I don't know, they're always pronouncing some of those names weird. But that one mm-hmm. is Toman and Circe. Toman. <laughs> um, anyway, Circe is kind of glaring at everybody. <laughs> Laura, she has another scene of ignoring Loras, mm-hmm. who's just like, 
Tywin, what a force. What a force. <laughs> I really liked that. He really was a force. <laughs> and Cersei just walks away. And I really like, as she's gazing around, looking at everybody hobnobbing and you know paying sympathies or whatever they're we're, they're doing she's you know we're, we're getting her growing suspicions about the Tyrells one she's ignoring Loras she sees Mace Tyrell mucking about mm-hmm. and of course Marjorie with Toman but that's actually the shot that I like the most because we see it in a couple instances it kind of cuts back to Cersei in the middle of it in one hand it's Tommen and Marjorie having this conversation and then Marjorie walks away and Tommen has this very almost like stage acting, but I, I still kind of liked it. It didn't seem like yeah. where he sort of like lets his arm drift out away with Marjorie's. And so he ends up with his like arm extended and it's almost like he's starting some sort of like dance routine, like interpretive mm-hmm, dance mm-hmm. routine, like a ballet or something. And like he'd be waiting for his partner to like come back, and I don't know. I, I thought it was just I thought it was a really kind of interesting gesture, I guess, and that maybe it spoke to. Well, it definitely speaks to the growing connection between Tom and, and Marjorie, and that they that they seem to be getting along quite well. Yeah. No, he's smitten, mm-hmm. I think. And then Lancel comes up comes up to Cersei to pay his respects, and his father. I don't know what to say. They often say Kevin. Mm-hmm. It's spelled Kavan, I guess. I think it's one of those things where it, it's Kevin, but like George changes the spelling of these things to yeah. make it seem more medieval or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And so we see also for the first time the Sparrows, and who I would still maybe consider a disappointing villain, although we get a lot more bang for our buck with them. So yeah. I won't be too disappointed in them. But we meet them for the first time. We get some sort of ominous conversation later just between Cersei and Lancel about he, he apologizes, he talks about his 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 sins and the things that he's done. He mentions both his sexual relationship with Cersei and also his role in Robert's death with mm-hmm. being his wine bearer. He says that the gods give out mercy or justice and that the the seven's world is at is at hand. Yeah. So that we're getting some some idea of of the action to come that there's going to be this um, religious sect that mm-hmm. is b- gaining power. In just the same way that Varys sort of like restated who he is and what his motivations are, mm-hmm. Lancel here is like, here's who I am. Here's what I did. <laughs> Remember, audience, I am Lancel. I don't look like him anymore. Yes, but my hair is much... the same character and the same actor. <laughs> my hair is shorter, and I've like bulked up. I've been to the gym. <laughs> Lancel does not miss leg day. He wants you to know. Or his neck. His yeah. neck is very thick now. Yeah, and he has this very sort of, his voice has gotten so much deeper too. <laughs> but Cersei is taking him about as seriously as we are. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> she um, is not impressed by his, the way that he's found Faith. She denies it all. And I, I, the, I think the way that this scene ends is, is interesting too because Lancel doesn't say like, thank you, you're great. Or, you know, all these kind of like niceties. He just, walks away mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and leaves Cersei standing there. Another bit of sort of exposition set up was the conversation between Olivar and Loras, which essentially is saying like, hey, this birthmark you have looks like Dorne. Let's talk about the geography of Dorne. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. this is a place where you will need to know these things very soon. But actually, you don't have to know them because they, they sort of take an entire continent and instead of being like, here's all these locations, they're just like, Dorn <laughs> is Dorn. So 
I mean, is that scene just to remind us that they're sort of a couple? I, I understand in at least in the in the books, it would be very embarrassing from a person for a person from Highgarden to have a Dorn uh, yeah. birthmark because they're at each other's throats. But that relationship is not explored at no. all in the show. So I, what is the other than to just show a bit of the actor's leg? What's the point of that? I think it's really just to set up like a reminder about Dorn. What is Dorn? Also, these characters are gay. Also, they're gay, and because I think. Also, also, Olivar in the show is going to be the one who sort of like ends up turning Loras in. Yeah. So I guess it's establishing that as an ongoing thing. That Olivar sucks. <laughs> yeah, that he's you know not to be trusted, mm-hmm. and uh, Loras really should be being more discreet. Though I don't know that discretion would really have saved him in this regard, because mm. Olivar was spying from the inside anyway. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and Loras is pretty sure that Cersei's not going to marry him now. Yes. Which he's absolutely right. Yeah, he's kind of like, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, who cares? In a kind of a intriguing line from Marjorie, I think one of the things that happens in this episode that leaves me the most sort of like, hmm, wonder what this could mean. Like, I really am curious what, what's going to go on here is he posits that, well, if I don't marry Cersei, then she'll be stuck here with you. Like, instead, we, otherwise we'd go to Highgarden. And Marjorie said, you know, essentially says, like, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And she says, perhaps that's what, be, what it will be like. He's like, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. So she's playing her cards very close to her chest in this mm-hmm. episode. She's not going to let anyone know anything. So up at the wall in Castle Black, John ends up having to plead with Mance Raider to try and get him to kneel at the behest of Stannis, who says he's going to burn him alive. And he's got till sunset to, mm-hmm. to get it done. And Mance is then the second character to speak of, I wish him well in the wars to come mm-hmm. later, which actually ends up being a phrase that gets repeated in seasons and episodes going forward by various characters. I don't really know if I understand that there's really significance to that, other than it just seems like maybe it's one of those lines that they really latch on to. Mm-hmm. Like the way that Cersei and other characters talk about like burning cities to the ground and it's just like why do we keep saying the same exact phrase over and over again it is almost like winter is coming i think someone says at at, at some point the starks are always right Mm -hmm. and i think wishing you well in the wars to come is sort of like in this world there's always Mm -hmm. another war coming and so there's something about the sort of i don't know the cycle of violence that Mm -hmm. like we're gonna keep fighting about this good luck in the next war yeah I, I thought it was telling, though. The, the episode is called The Wars to Come. Mm-hmm. Mance says wars. Mm-hmm. Varys says war. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if that was unintentional. Like, if, if they should have, everybody should have stuck to the same yeah. plurality or lack thereof here with the, uh, with the line. So, I don't know. There's also the conversation that John has with Mance about pride and saving your people and kneeling, that this is the same conversation that he had in the most recent season where, but he was the one being told, like, don't be proud. Yeah. Do what, do what needs to be done to save your people. Yeah. And I, I really like Mance, the actor who plays Mance's mm-hmm. here performance. I mean, I've, I've liked him the whole time, but he really gets some time to shine here in this episode. I didn't mean that as a pun. Um, <laughs> but says, the freedom to make my own mistakes was all I ever wanted. And I, I think it's a really great line, essentially, for him to go out on, more or less. I mean, he's, he does have the line that he gives to Stannis later of, this was my home for many years. I wish you good fortune in the wars to come. I, what do you think of that? Like, the idea that he's going to get burned at the stake, he seems, and has expressed to John, he has some degree of respect for Stannis, just 
you know, not in the sense of he wants to fight for him or, mm-hmm. or kneel to him or anything like that. He thinks that he'd be maybe a good king. But I don't know. Is he saying, like, this was my home for many years? I This is where I should die? Or, hey, don't mess the place up? <laughs> well, there's. I think there's a couple layers to that. One, it is where he has to die because mm-hmm. he is a deserter from the Night's Watch. And so... Mm-hmm. I also and I had to I had to do some background. I didn't just remember this, but mm-hmm. I Mance Raider was originally a wildling who was abandoned at the wall mm-hmm. and then raised by the Knights of the Watch of the Night's Watch, the Knight <laughs> Men of the Night's Watch, <laughs> the Knights of the Watch, the Knights of the Man Watch, <laughs> exactly. And so there may be something that he see like I was initially a wildling and then I was sort of brought into this order and asked to protect someone who I, with whose aims I didn't really care about mm. and that he may feel the same thing that would happen to him would happen to all of the wildlings that if they were forced to fight a war that they really don't have any stake in um, mm. that they would feel the same sort of inner conflict that he feels I don't know yeah. I, I don't know that it may not be that deep <laughs> <laughs> well I think it gives us some stuff to read into everybody's just watching Mance Raider get mm-hmm. burned I mean I, I realize this is like medieval entertainment like the thing going on is like, oh, there's action in the yard. Let's see what's happening. And everybody sort of stands around. And also it's, you know, with the king in attendance and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. So everybody is is watching quietly. Celise has this blissful, self-righteous look on her face. And they've got her lit from both sides. So she's got this real sort of, it's, it reminds me of how we had the episode two swords where it was a sword that had these kind of like very stark lighting on both yeah. sides and sort of like this lit on by fire and very sort of sharp. She had very sharp features and something very creepy and almost like mannequin-like about the way that they have her framed here. And it's all the, the worst because she's, she's having Shireen stand by her and watch. Mm-hmm. I mean, although Shireen's not really watching, her eyes are closed. But Celise and Melisandre right now are the only people who know what's going to happen to Shireen, and so it seems particularly cruel to have her stand and watch. Yeah. While this is going on, John decides, uh-uh, this is too cruel, and he and he shoots Mance through the heart. This has him in opposition to fire, in this sort of, like, if we're going to divide things in ice and fire, which the books and show quite mm-hmm. sort of say that we should, it really puts him on the ice side because he's interrupting and maybe even blaspheming against a fire ritual. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what to do with that other than it seems like if we're going to break things down into some sort of dichotomy, he's very firmly on the ice side for this. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is another thing that makes him of the North, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of in defiance of the heat of the South, he he opts for the the cold of the North. yeah. He definitely comes down on one side. As someone who may be the mixture of both, mm-hmm. he doesn't act like a mixture. He's not like, fire and ice are equally cool, guys. <laughs> yeah. He's like, makes a definite decision. Mm-hmm. So a lot happens in the first episode of season five and about as much happens in the second episode. Would you please give us a rundown of the House of Black and White? Sure. So we start out, Arya arrives in Bravos and is taken to the House of Black and White. An unknown character appears at the door, but refuses her entry. Arya then wanders around town and ends up threatening some locals who want to cause trouble with her. The unnamed House of Black and White character reappears and takes Arya back to the House of Black and White. There he reveals his face to be that of Jacques and Hagar, though it may be just some sort of weird mask thing. He says he's not Jacques, that he is no one, and that is what Arya must become as well, and then leads her inside. Brienne and Pod find Sansa and Littlefinger in a tavern. Brienne pledges herself to Sansa but is refused. Brienne and Pod flee from Vale Knights, 
and take one of their horses. Brienne still pledges to follow Sansa anyway. Cersei receives a threat from Dorne regarding Marcella's safety. Jaime enlists Bronn to go with him to Dorne and retrieve Marcella. In Dorne, we see Ilaria rooting and calling for war. Prince Doran Martell refuses and seems to have only a loose grip on the people of Dorne. Dario and Grey Worm capture one of the Sons of the Harpy. Mosador kills the prisoner who was due to stand trial. Dany has Mosador publicly executed and her people begin to riot. Later, Drogon returns after many weeks of absence. Varys and Tyrion begin their journey to Marine by way of Volantis in a slow-moving litter. Bounty hunters kill dwarves and present them to Cersei. Cersei names Kyburn Master of Whisperers at the small council meeting, where Kevin Lannister, Cersei's uncle, defies Cersei's authority and walks out. At Castle Black, Shireen is teaching Gilly to read. Stannis offers Jon legitimization as Jon Stark, Lord of Winterfell, but Jon tells Sam that he'll refuse the offer. Just soon after that, the members of the Night's Watch vote on who the new Lord Commander should be, and to everyone's surprise, John, perhaps most of all, he is named the 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. So not not quite as much, but still, still really, I, to use your phrase, setting the table for mm-hmm. the action that will come throughout the rest of the season. And a lot of things happening, in some cases, very quickly. Particularly, you know, we... I ended my description, though it doesn't actually end the episode, with John being named the Lord Commander. Mm-hmm. That happens so fast. Yes. And I think they miss some opportunities for what I think is some pretty fun stuff in the books with Sam sort of like politicking in the yeah. background, being like, and also that we don't get to see Dennis Malister say anything, though at least they did cast him. Mm-hmm. We don't get to meet Cotter Pike, who always seemed like kind of a pretty interesting character, mm-hmm. this bastard from the Iron Islands who you know runs Eastwatch by the Sea. Mm-hmm. And also we, we have also the propping up of Alistair Thorne, where in the books it's really Jano Slint, who himself is, you know, as a former commander of the City Watch, is John's big competitor there, and seems like he's the one that's maybe going to going to take the reins so uh, we miss it's not that we miss like a certain nuance to it but i just think there's some fun story beats in there that that just kind of cut for the sake of making john lord commander as fast as possible yeah it also the end or the the final vote the casting of the final vote even though it's sweet Mm -hmm. it's a little it's very conventional ending i feel like i've seen it in a different a million different shows and movies Mm -hmm. that it's a tie between john and alistair thorne and Eamon, with a little smirk, votes for John right. and breaks the tie. Yeah. And it's I'm, it's kind of silly. It is. I did want to say, last episode, we were talking about Elish the Thorn, and we weren't exactly sure how he got right. to the wall. I did a little bit of internet research, and he was fighting for the Targaryens at King's Landing when uh, Tywin came in, and he gave everyone the choice, either take the black or lose your head. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, maybe a reason that he is so spiteful and and maybe um, hates John particularly because John's father was one of the uh, main rebels against the Targaryens. So yeah. that explains a little bit of that, I think. Might be part of the reason he's up there, right? Yeah. So, um, and also him being clearly pretty highborn and noble and a knight and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, definitely spiteful. It, yes. It shows. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't hide it well. So the only other stuff I have at Castle Black was... Not really with John and company, but it was with Sam and Gilly. I think there's some pretty funny scenes, I think, where Shireen is teaching Gilly how to read, and Sam is reading some other book about the youngest Lord Commander of all time. And 
Gilly turns and says, like, I know S. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think actually the dark end to that scene is when Celise comes in and says, you know, stay away from that wildling girl. And Sam is also left. And essentially she says, you have no idea what these people will do. She intends to seemingly mean the wildlings. But, of course, like it's kind of even a nod to the audience like you you, the audience, have no idea what these people will do, and to have that be to Shireen, it's like another maybe ominous foreshadowing that might not think of it that way, but when we know what happens, it's like, okay, maybe this is another tell here, that this was known, and that she, that the character of Celise knows. That is really something that, when I was watching the show the first time, I might, there must have been something that sort of got through to my brain, but it didn't feel like they were telegraphing it from a mile away. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's still, when it happens, it still packs a punch and it's not like, okay, we knew this was coming. Yeah. So that's maybe one of the best done sort of things that is actually, it's actually clear that it's going to happen, right? It's not like some of the Arya Sansa business mm-hmm. from the most recent season where it's like, we're going to show it one way and then it's going to be something totally different. Yeah. But it also wasn't. They didn't let us know so clearly that it didn't matter by the time the time the time came. Yeah. So I think it was it's um, handled really well. Yeah. You know, or and the other example would be sort of Cersei having this prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. So it sort of sets up like this is what has happened. We've seen enough of the prophecy come true mm-hmm. that we believe in the rest of it. And you know, I think that has different consequences. It's it's framed and used a little bit differently, and I don't think it's like ineffective. But to have this sort of less explicit threatening element hinted at and talked about mm-hmm. throughout but not necessarily be stated to the point where it's like oh when yeah when's uh, when they're gonna burn shireen you know it's like, yeah. yeah yeah so i i feel like i have a lot of criticisms for this season but that and i think you're right also the use of cersei's prophecy uh, they're really well done and mm-hmm. they it, it's enough so it makes sense when the things happen but it doesn't seem so inevitable that you stop caring mm-hmm. well we could jump back to aria here yeah. she opens the episode She's got a pretty fun entry into Bravos where she's very determined looking and mm-hmm. then the the blaring horn of the Titan of Bravos sort of like makes her step back and she has to kind of gather herself and she's mm-hmm. the captain's like, Don't be afraid. She's like, I'm not afraid. And it's like obviously she's afraid of <laughs> like you don't have to be ashamed of being afraid of a giant surprising noise that came out of nowhere. <laughs> it's it's okay. You don't have to be so defensive all the time, Arya. It's all she knows. What do you think of the introduction of Arya and Bravos in the House of Black and White here? I really like it. I think mm-hmm. it's really well done. We get to see a new location. It's the sort of, I don't know, the Venice of Essos, right? Mm-hmm. That it has it has things that are familiar, but it's still different from everything else we've seen in the show. They've got it they've got a different look and, and the city is very different. I think the design for the House of Black and White, we've only seen the outside at this point, is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's I mean in my picture of it in, from the books, it wasn't sort of off on its own yeah. as much, but I kind of like this. It's, it's, you have to take a rowboat out and it's sort of, it's apart from the rest of the city. It's a very imposing building with no windows. I, I like the look of it and her, her first day or her first days in Bravos, I think are really great. I don't know that that, that level of quality <laughs> will be held the entire time where we haven't met our disappointing villain of um, House of Black and White yet, yeah. Waif. But now, I think it seems really cool. What did you think? Yeah, I, I, design-wise, I'm really into a lot of the choices they've made here. The sort of 
Freemasons monolith temple mm-hmm. look that they have to this thing. No windows, just this giant, brutalist block of concrete or whatever it is or stone stands really ominously. It almost like also feels like it. It's hard to tell if it's like if this is an island or what exactly. I, I guess a lot of these things are t- technically small islands, so I guess it's that could be the case. But to have like the weight distribution of this extremely huge, heavy thing on like what feels like. You know, obviously islands aren't floating pieces of land, but there's so many things that kind of feel like they're floating yeah. in a place like Venice and this kind of scene that they set in Bravos. It feels like this crazy weight distribution. We've got this giant thing on this very tiny little space. Well, and I think they do that on purpose. When she throws her coin into the water, mm-hmm. the camera is bobbing on the water. And so I think it does give this illusion of of maybe of a sort of floating island mm-hmm. that... I haven't seen them do something like that really before, but you sort of are just bobbing on the ocean, and it, mm-hmm. it's, it gives you a really strange impression of the building. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't know that I am as on board with the some of the story beat things that they do with this, where essentially she's refused entry by a, by a new character that we have not met. Well, I'll just call the kindly man, because that's what this role this character plays in the books. Mm-hmm. And she's denied... She sits around saying her relatively short list for seemingly hours and hours. Maybe days. Maybe days. And then she just gets up and leaves, throws her coin in there, and just starts starts wandering around. And I just don't know that the fact that the kindly man reappears when she's being threatened by um, some ruffians in an alley, like, why does he show up then? What did she do, really? Like, that she stood her ground against these guys but it just didn't seem like it was a character revealing moment that the kindly man would see this thing go on and be like oh i've got to let her in like now she's ready yeah or maybe she would have done something if she could have like i don't know like fought them off or i don't know just something else It, it just seemed like why does why was this a special moment why is this the moment that we return and that you sort of like all right you proved your worth like, you killed the pigeon? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right that that's not clear at all that what, what's changed, uh, why initially refuse her, and then she's just hanging around Bravos, mm-hmm. killing pigeons, and, I mean, would probably do okay against those Maybe. guys. Maybe. But it's not really a test to her, her either her ability or something like her moral mm-hmm. compass. She's, she's going to fight some guys in the street. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm... You're right. I am equally puzzled, mm-hmm. and it didn't. It doesn't reveal anything about anything. And as much as I think, when I originally saw this, I was kind of into the reveal of the face of Jacquin mm-hmm. on the kindly man. Now I kind of come back to it, and I maybe it's just because I don't like the way that this story will end up resolving. And I was like, how could this be different? How could we have maybe gotten in a different <laughs> track? I kind of wish they would have just kept the same actor. Yeah. And we didn't necessarily need. The whole like weird confusion about like, oh, it's Jockin, but it's not Jockin. Like, well, you did go through the trouble of hiring another actor. You could have just kept that guy. I mean, do we need Jockin to come back? How did you feel about the, this reveal? Yeah, no, I I think for the story it doesn't make a lot of sense for, and we'll we have talked about it, I'm sure, and we'll continue to talk about how the show doesn't really seem to understand what the faceless men are right. and what their philosophy is and i'm sure they just brought him back because they liked the actor and because he was it's i mean they they really do have this fear i think about the audience not being able to keep all the characters straight Mm -hmm. and so to bring an old face back 
But this seems like not the place to do it because it the whole thing is faces. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think for the story, it's probably not a good move. I do like the actor. Yes. But they could have found other actors. And so for him to come back, it also seems like... And and in the story, again, he'll he'll die again, but still sort of be resurrected. It's like, are there or maybe is there, not die? Is there only one face that you guys share? Like, yeah. Also, the like because this character now, well, I'll be curious to be proven right or wrong on this, but like I feel like they have not play not Jock and Hagar. They have not play this other character essentially, mm-hmm. and it's just not as interesting of a character. You know, yeah, yeah. It's it's not like it, you have then the face of Jockin, who is this cool occasionally like funny character because he has this way of speaking and like mm-hmm. sometimes talks about himself in the third person and to have then that character here which is more serious and everything's more grim and he's less like this kind of assassin friend and more like this kind of frumpy teacher it's like who doesn't seem to be paying that much attention yeah yeah it's just it's a little it's then a little bit of a letdown that that is like you expect that to be jock and hagar yeah, well, I think we can probably say, although I'll try to keep an open mind, that the House of Black and White, in general, is kind of a letdown. It is, in general. The one thing I'll say, and then we haven't gotten too much into it in this episode, is I really start noticing Arya's theme music a lot more in the House of Black and White than I had noticed it in other things, because everything is so quiet, I yeah. guess, and they feature it very prominently, and I really like that theme. Mm-hmm. And I actually, for a long time, thought of it I thought that was the House of Black and White's theme, not Arya's theme, oh. uh, because I had never really even taken notice of it at that point. Yeah. I, I don't think I would be able to point hers out, so I'll have to keep an eye or an ear out for that, I guess. It has this real sort of like single string ascending plucking. Dune. I can't do it. But yeah. I'll listen for yeah. it. I won't, I won't make you I, do I it acapella for me. Well, if we're talking about acting choices that are maybe a little strange, can I ask one if you if you notice something that I heard was supposed to be in a scene that I didn't really see for myself? Okay. Okay. So when we're in the tavern with Brienne and Podrick and Littlefinger and Dark Sansa mm-hmm. and Brienne is is pledging her sword, what I hear was the direction given to Sansa's character was to refuse with your mouth but say yes with your eyes. Do you feel that it is clear that Sansa is saying, I can't say yes here because of Littlefinger, but I need I, I would like you to, to help me? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think she's flat out refusing her. I agree. And honestly, I think Littlefinger makes a pretty good case. You know, and it's very similar to the case that the Hound made against Brienne in front of Arya. It's like, oh, poor Brienne, like... Maybe you should have learned. Maybe you should have left your sword back at the table with Pod when you came over here. I know you had to pledge your sword or whatever, but, you know, maybe get something a little less gaudy. She should just put, like, just wrap it in leather or put, like, mm-hmm. I'm imagining, like, a paper mache cover so that it doesn't look quite so lannister Yeah, right. Yeah, I think Sansa straight up shuts her down here. I, and... I agree. I was surprised to hear that the direction was to, to leave a space open that, yeah, Brienne, I need you. I, I don't mm-hmm. see it at all. No, I think she's fully in Littlefinger and I are partners right now. Well, she at least believes that's the case and is moving forward with it. Littlefinger seems like he's now keeping secrets from her. But, yeah, I think they're on the same page. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to check if I had missed something. Uh, I like the one shot from that scene before Brienne gets over there and the knights sort of block Brienne from entering. And they just have Littlefinger essentially is in this booth 
and is in sort of a backward middle ground back there. And these knights and everything is sort of blocking the way, but he's very much in the center of the frame, essentially surrounded by all these guards. And he's that's how he's having the conversation with Brienne with, mm-hmm. with all these with all these guys around, uh, very small in frame. I thought it was a cool looking shot. Yeah, yeah. I also think the ending to that one, to that scene is a little strange that, like, what does exactly does Brienne think is going to happen to them if they stay? Like, are they going to be detained? Is that the fear, maybe? Yeah. Because they break out, and then, you know, the the knights are in pursuit. Another instance of our poor knights of the Vale always seem to get it mm-hmm. in the end, and uh, this this time is no different. But, yeah, I just thought it was a little bit of sort of, like, wait, why are you running away exactly? And Brienne's, they, you know, they steal one of their horses. <laughs> Not maybe the most honorable thing to do, but yeah, I just thought it was a little strange that, that, that they busted out like that. It seemed like an excuse to have an, this departure happen again and then Littlefinger and Sansa can flee and then they can follow them. And Yeah. I mean, I really like Brienne and I like Podrick too, mm-hmm. but I think they probably didn't need to show us as many scenes of them as they did. That I wouldn't have been confused if she was able to f- find Sansa up in the north and maybe still did her candle thing yeah. after after Sansa um, moves to Winterfell. It wouldn't have seemed, especially with all the other things we see in the show, it wouldn't have seemed impossible. And so some of these scenes, especially of the sort of in, in the first episode, this misconnection, and in this one too, which is another kind of misconnection, but at least they speak, they're probably not necessary. Yeah, because a lot of Brienne's plot in this sort of time frame in the books is to show the state of the world mm-hmm. in the Riverlands at mm-hmm. the time and sort of what does a post-war environment look like. We saw a little bit of that with Arya and the Hound last season, but... Brienne would really help flesh a lot of that stuff out and it's very interesting but it does go into a lot of details and I'm not surprised that they don't do those go to all those places in the books because it is all about building like the history of that land mm-hmm. like what was it like in this in Duskendale like in all, all this kind of like extended history stuff which is interesting I like it in the books but I it doesn't necessarily make for the most not that it couldn't make for good TV but when you've got all these other plot lines going on at the same time it would feel like this weird like slow detour yeah it would have it would take some a really good director to make that fit into yeah. what, what else is going on in the world so we hear from Dorne we do we if, even before we go to Dorne which we do pop there briefly we hear from Dorne for some reason, they're sending a threat. Also, a little bit of a plot hole that I saw in the trivia is Cersei says there's only two of those necklaces in the world, but like, there's actually literally like two other necklaces like that that have been shown in the show so far. So, <laughs> I was gonna say like Lannister necklaces. I feel like I've seen them. Yeah, and I do think it's a little. You know, they have Cersei wearing it, right? And it's sort of like it feels a little bit like. I know it's meant to be this this connection, like, oh, she's holding this connection with Marcella, so we're going to emphasize that here. But, like, she was wearing these, like, baller giant jewels last episode. Yeah. Even, even yeah, I think it was last season, but then also in episode one of this season, it's like, oh, she traded in for, like, this little, like, precious moments locket, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's the only way I can make it make sense in the story. I mean, I make it makes sense for the show to be like, remember there's Dorne and her daughter's there. Mm-hmm. That maybe the Sand Snakes and Ilaria are trying to bait the Lannisters to invade Dorne, mm. especially since Duran is not willing to start a war, that maybe he would be willing to fight a war that mm-hmm. came to him. And so maybe they're trying to be like, Cersei really loves her daughter. Maybe she'll start a war over her. Yeah. But otherwise, it's 
the the gesture i don't know is odd it does yeah. make a lot of sense i mean i guess yeah it's, it's just maybe a little bit of even an unthinking provocation right like and and that's i think we'll come to see like that that, that is what the sand snakes are all about is just sort of this rage and this lust yeah. for revenge and yeah. so maybe that's just all they care about but it is like a sculpture of a snake <laughs> Or like it's, a taxidermied snake. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very proppy um, yeah. look to it. And then Jamie, who's feeling pretty sheepish from our last episode, he decides I'm gonna act like a dad. Yeah. And I'm gonna go to Dorn. Yeah, sure. And I'm gonna take someone with me, and it's Bron, which I feel like is just for the fans. Mm-hmm. Do I love the two together? Yes, I do. But I'm a fan, and you don't always give me what I want. <laughs> well. Actually, one more thing before before we go with the to the bronze scene. Jamie, when he comes into Cersei and they've got like the they open up, he opens up the snake thing, snake box. He goes, "No note." <laughs> <laughs> like Jamie's such an idiot. <laughs> he like can't seem to figure out what it means. The basic symbolism of giant snake holding your daughter's <laughs> necklace in its jaws. And then when Jamie does say he's going to go to Dorne, uh, Cersei goes. You're gonna go to Dorn? <laughs> it's like as sur- audience surrogate here. Mm-hmm. We un- we don't know that it's the audience surrogate yet. But it's like really, you gonna go to Dorn? <laughs> All right, so fine. And then the scene with uh, Lawless and Bronn is pretty funny. Uh, we know that Bronn has these aspirations to knock off Lawless' older sister, and so he more or less foreshadows that he's yeah. he is intent on doing that. But Jamie, in his I think what maybe the outfit that I'd like to talk about the most is like he's finally in his kind of like rock star duds here. They've given <laughs> him his cool leather jacket. Yeah. It's a tight fit, you know. He's got his his nice kind of, um, you know, he's a little bit unshaven, just got enough of a scruff going there. His hair is nicely and pointed. He's got some product going. Yeah. Um, he's looking very modelly here. <laughs> And I think it's uh, it's funny that then that they have him in this kind of really cool getup, and then Lawless is just sort of like fawning over him, and Bronn's feeling a little second fiddle. Well, especially Bronn looks silly. Bronn looks best when he is sort of rough and tumble. Mm-hmm. He looks very silly in a lord's uh, yeah. outfit and with a long cloak and with big gloves, and <laughs> and so um, yeah, I think I think that Bronn feels a little insecure. He's like, hey. We're going to get married. I used to wear these kind of clothes. Come on. <laughs> but he finds out, no, they're not going to get married. Mm-hmm. Right. You're going to wear other kinds of clothes to try and fit in in Dorne, and it's going to be a very costumey. Yeah, yeah. So, but those two together is a fun time, but I still think mostly fan service. Yeah. We actually get to see Dorne. Yeah. And it's beautiful, and it holds so much promise because the set is great. Morning Ilaria looks awesome. She's got more cool disco outfit. Mm-hmm. I noticed she's already wearing at this point the antidote to the poison that she will use on Marcella. And so it's she's it's a blue blue vial and it's sort of it almost looks like the harpy. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a, a a center blue vial okay. with a kind of winged metal around it and and she's already wearing it. So she's already she's already got her plan. She's got that um bracelet sort of wrapping snake that sort of as we kind of come to Dorne on framed on a coiled fist Mm -hmm. and so that definitely is going to signify what's going forward you know Ilari in the books is is sort of seeks for peace but there's so many other characters in Dorne who are like trying to get to war I don't mind really at all that Mm -hmm. they recast her and or not 
that they reframe her as the one that's seeking war. It's like they were probably going to need to pare down some of the Dorn characters at a certain point anyway. So if that's the choice they make, I'm I'm fine with that regard. Yeah. And I think the setup here in Dorne, I like. Yeah. Um, yeah. They they frame I think Doran pretty well. I love the actor. Yeah. So. And they're in the what they're what they're calling the Water Gardens here, which again they've they're condensing Dorne all these like places in Dorne that Sunspear would not technically be where the water gardens are, but they're just sort of condensed them all. Mm-hmm. And even like when they put in opening credits, it'll just say Dorne right. on it. And it's like, okay, well, it sort of felt like the show is now going to start treating Dorne as just kind of this monolith thing. Just like, who knows the geography of Dorne? Well, uh, uh, Olivar, but um, <laughs> nobody else. And uh, Prince Doran is looking down at Marcella and Tristane, which I don't think we've said Tristane's name yet in the show, but Mm-mm. they're this idyllic prince and princess fairy tale couple. Marcella's wearing this pink dress. and That just is like looks like it's made out of cotton candy yeah. or something. It's very f- floofy. It's, it's super vibrant also, mm-hmm. and in a stark contrast to sort of the aesthetic of Dorne. Mm-hmm. So it feels very sort of like, you know, medieval palace and mm-hmm. not necessarily the sort of hot and more Mediterranean feel of of Dorne and of the capital and that kind of stuff. And Tristane's walking around with this, you know, essentially like costume sword belt and ready to fight for his princess, you know. And so I like that they're shown that way and just sort of shown from a distance. And even as a parallel to the scene that we had last episode between Tommen and Marjorie in the throne room, a uh, similarly kind of similar kind of couple in that regard, at least as far as Tommen's sort of vision of what right. that couple is, 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 is what's actually happening down right. here. The sort of fairy tale, the kind of high fantasy that the show is actually much more gritty than usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everything's, I think you're right, everything in this episode is set up to, to be cool, to have some follow through. And of course, if I'm talking about disappointing villains, this is the top of the list, <laughs> but we don't know that yet. Yeah. And it's, it's laid out to us pretty clearly. Prince Duran is a pacifist. He doesn't want to have his subjects killed because his brother decided to get involved in someone else's business. And Ilaria is saying, well, you, won't, you might not be king for long. Everyone wants us to go to war, and you're a weak fool. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty laid out pretty clearly for us. Yeah. Yeah, and it just doesn't really deliver. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Area yeah. Hotel's got a cool... Halberd. Yeah. And I mean, just everything about it looks so good. I mean, mm. it's in, in some of the Moorish palaces in Spain and the way that they've done the costuming and it looks so different. It had a lot of promise. It's like they went through all this effort. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of effort. There was a feature that was released alongside this season or probably actually technically came out afterwards. Basically, it's it's a half hour that says, like, this is a very expensive, very intricate show. It is difficult to produce. Mm-hmm. Like, so to see all that effort and all this, like, elaborate stuff, hundreds of extras, essentially what amounts to, like, two, over, like, 250 days of shooting if you count sort of the two units that happen simultaneously. It's an insane level of production. And then to be, like, to have this, this story itself not have the follow through when so much of the other things like are so on point. Yeah. But, you know, I guess we'll get there when we get there, yeah. right? We're still yeah. in the episode where things are looking all right. Yeah. Yeah. In King's Landing, Cersei is in the process of stacking the small council with people who 
will agree with her or who are not strong enough to uh, oppose her. Oh, you mean sycophants? Sycophants. Yeah. So she gives Mace Tyrell another title. Um, he's now also Master of Coin. Yeah. Pay for the things, Mace. That's what we want. Yep. And he, she uh, makes Kyburn the Master of Whispers and asks her uncle Kevin to be Master of War, um, which is not something that exists in the books, right. but he refuses. And then she uh, decides not to fill the position of king, uh, Hand of the King at all. Mm-hmm. It's obviously herself. Yeah, she's sitting sitting in place for the time being. They've got this creepy little spotlight on Kyburn I thought it was mm-hmm. pretty nice as far as like <laughs> him also being on the other side of the table. And Pycelle might uh, voice his troubles, but he still ultimately will go along with things. And Mace Tyrell obviously is going along with, along with things. Mm-hmm. So Kevin Lannister is really the, the only one who stands up to Cersei and says, yeah. says no. I mean, and not, not just no. He says, you are the queen mother, mm-hmm. nothing more. Yeah. And I'm just like, ooh, <laughs> that's going to get you killed, Kevin. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, you're not wrong that she doesn't technically have the authority to do this. You're also coming from a really misogynist point of view. Yeah. But also, you're also not wrong about Cersei. And <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a complex thing where we're both sort of against maybe the reasoning for some of Kevin's <laughs> defiance here, but not necessarily against that he would be against Cersei in general. Right. There's also, I, there's a quick cut that I just like, although it, it's, it's sort of sadly funny, that in the huge wagon going to Volantis with Tyrion and um, Varys, that Tyrion asks, is Cersei going to kill all dwarves? Mm-hmm. And then the next cut, we see a, a, the head of a dwarf on yeah. a table. And the answer is, yes, yeah. she will, happily, in order to find you. And so I, I, I liked the cut. I think it was a good edit. But it is and also very true to the books yeah. that like tens maybe hundreds of dwarves are delivered to her mm-hmm. dead and hoping to get the reward. So it's Tyrion doesn't seem to realize in that moment how much his sister yeah. hates him. And I believe, at least it had been maybe puzzled out by some other folks who, who looked into it, that the beheaded dwarf that is brought to Cersei is meant to be the the performer from Joffrey's wedding who was taking the role of Joffrey in, mm. that, in that wedding. I think it's supposed to be the same character. Yeah. I, I, the face looks sort of familiar, mm-hmm. maybe a little plasticky. A little more, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's left here really is checking in with Daenerys again. Well, actually, I guess before we get to Daenerys, we do have Dario and Grey Worm going Sons of the Harpy hunting. And then Dario talks about how, you know, the Grey, Grey Worm the Unsullied will never find these people who, you know, are hiding, right? That the Unsullied don't know fear, so they don't know what a fearful person would do to sort of stay out of their eye. And then very surprisingly, as I said earlier, pulls a man out of a wall. (laughs) Or actually, you know, he stabs a man through a wall and then the man breaks through the wall and falls falls down. How did that man get in that wall? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure. Is it is it secret passageways? Is it that he was so scared that he like Put him like he, he plastered, he, he it plastered up. himself into a wall. I'm not sure, Dan. Maybe somebody helped him. He's like, okay, I'll do the inside framing, but then you finish it off on the outside. How will you eat? Uh, I don't know. I'll figure that I'm out. Too scared. Yeah, I'm too scared to think about it. <laughs> I was surprised. I was. I didn't see that going that way. Like, of all the places to hide, I did not think in the wall. It's because you're not afraid enough. I'm Dan. not afraid enough. You know, it's that's what everybody says about me. It's just, <laughs> no fear. 
So they find this person. He's tortured for all the information that he has. But then they're trying to decide, what do we do with him now? What's the message that we want to send to the city of Marine? And that's sort of the main conflict for this episode. And I think probably a couple episodes to, to come. Mm-hmm. That the way to show the masters and the sons of the harpy that their their violence and their wish to return to slavery will not be will not be entertained is to kill him but the way to show the entire city that Daenerys is a different kind of queen would be to have a trial and then from the trial to to say is he is he guilty or innocent right. should he be sentenced to death what should the punishment be yeah. right and you know that Mossador takes matters into his own hands really forces Danny's hand. She has a quote in the throne room later that says, the law is the law. After Mossador says, you're the queen, essentially you can do whatever you want. You can make the law. And she she's de- defers to essentially what is already written. So in a, a rare sort of change from tearing down the harpy, we're going to tear that down, but we're going to uphold essentially the laws of the land in a certain res- a sense. And, you know, this is a scene that's not in the books, in fact, Mosador, the character, is in the books, is Masande's brother. It doesn't really have this role to play. He's Indian, Solita, I actually think, or at least fights alongside them. And this is really a, a Rob Stark, Karstark mm-hmm, moment mm-hmm. where essentially this person that you do not want to kill, like you want to keep them on your side, you know that executing them is going to turn a lot of other folks against you who have been for you this whole time. But she goes forward with it anyway. Because I guess she sees it as the the right thing to do. I, I like the way that this is shot, even if I'm even I'm sort of unclear sometimes on what the show is. I mean, they might say like, "We're not going to tell you what to think. Mm-hmm. It's up to you." And I'm like, "Yeah, but I need some I need some sort of idea of like what the moral compass of this mm-hmm. show." So you've got the former masters on one side and the former slaves on the other, and all the former slaves are calling for mercy mm-hmm. and Misa and Masador especially while he's kneeling with like the with an Eric at his neck is calling her Misa, mother, right? And even with these pleas, um, she still has him executed. And there's a great flip where then all of the former slaves go, mm-hmm. they start hissing at her. And and it doesn't please the former masters either. Mm-hmm. And, there, and, a, and a fight breaks out. And the only thing I can take from it definitively is that this is her failure as a mother, right? That her her son, her child was calling mother, and, and she has him executed. And then we also see that she's uh, been a failure as a mother to her dragons. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't know I don't know what else she could have done. I guess there is there's this sort of tension in the show between justice and mercy, and that maybe this was a time to show mercy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know either. It's I, it's probably one of those things where there's not a good answer to it. Like there's not a, there's certainly not an answer that's going to satisfy everybody. Mm-hmm. I think the perhaps miscalculation on her part, if this is all part of playing politics, I don't necessarily think that's the case though, because she's talked about the law being the law. So it seems like she's just trying to follow the right, the honorable thing, what, what sort of has been written down. But when you have the calls for mercy, we're not given necessarily the counter call we're mm-hmm. not we don't see the master the former masters calling execute execute or something like that it's just purely this overwhelming call for mercy and the masters are more or less silent seeing what they're going to do and i think it's maybe oh so this is not the point i was getting to the miscalculation on her part might be that if she was trying to essentially do this to maybe appease the masters to a certain degree i don't think the masters care that much 
and the killings with the sons of the harpy are not you know they continue mm-hmm. regardless of what happens here so this is a real shoot yourself in the foot moment not even necessarily just the execution but most of are killing the the prisoner and this whole thing is this like self-inflicted wound yeah so that ends badly for mm-hmm. her and in a, she's sort of in an upset state and then she hears a noise and drogon stops by to say hello yeah whom she hasn't seen in weeks and it's i guess it's like you're not doing so bad mom it's mm-hmm. okay yeah i think it's it's a good i think I like that scene because she has this elaborate reach out to touch him on the nose scene kind of a la john snow mm-hmm. in uh season seven but she doesn't actually touch him and i, th- I thought that was maybe the, the telling thing right you're my child essentially mother of dragons and you know we have this connection where unlike the other ones they he doesn't snap at her but he doesn't also allow himself to be touched and he flies away still in the sense of like i'm going to do my own thing like i don't belong to you mm-hmm. but i mm-hmm. i am loyal to you sort of thing yeah and I, maybe that is sort of an abstra- a lesson in the abstract for Daenerys to take forward as far as the grip that she's trying to hold on to her people here and that she can't, she can't win everything. She can't console everyone who she wants to uh, see treated in a very specific way. You know, She has to be a little bit more benevolent. Yeah, and that's the end. Yeah, I think this is a long one. Just going to go out of this. <laughs> I think we've been talking for a bit. But I think this one, th- these two episodes had had a lot to discuss because, again, we're picking up on a new season. But again, this new season that has a, a lot of new places and in some ways feels like they are constructing the episodes in a slightly different manner as far as storytelling goes mm-hmm. than they have in the past. And they're setting up a lot of stuff here. Yeah, and we, I mean, part of what we talk about in this podcast, but what we've had less cause to is the adaptation part. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing huge divergences. And so there's some of these things that are worth addressing that maybe we didn't have to in earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's telling, like, if you look at the trivia and all these kind of like extended sections in like uh, IMD pages for some of these episodes, you know, before it'd be like a handful of things like, oh, you know, weird production notes, so-and-so you know, also start in this, and he said this line, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. These ones are like a whole list of stuff, and m- about three quarters of them are like, in the books, this character's like this, but not in the show, you know, and this is weird, just like, this is different than the books kind of thing. Yeah, so hopefully we're not repeating ourselves too much with that, but there are there are big changes, and there are, there are things that make the story really different, and some of them are better, and some of them are not. Yeah. I think this might be the only time we see Michael Slovis. I don't think that we have him come back. I would have to check that again, but I think that's it yeah. for him. So, but pretty good. Pretty good, yeah, Michael Slovis. Yeah. Uh, I think my qualms are more with the writing in this stuff than, than necessarily the direction anyway. So, Agreed. So that'll do it for our episode here. Remember that you can check us out at themummersfarce.libson.com for all of our podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify. We've been there the whole time. Well, not the whole time, but if you are having trouble finding The Mummer's Farce on Spotify, try searching for The Mummer's Farce. Sometimes if you just search for Mummer's, you're not going to find it. It's weird. <laughs> Spotify search sucks like that. So, you know, grain of salt. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Mummer's Farce Pod, being our handle there. And if you want to send us an email with comments, suggestions, or questions, The Mummer's Farce Podcast at gmail.com is the one to send it to. 
And uh, yeah, that'll do it for our episode here. We'll return next time with episodes three and four from season five, and uh, we'll give it the thorough treatment. (laughs) All right. Bye, Dan. All right. See you, Kate. Bye. Bye.